The text of this sermon is from 2 Samuel, chapter 18, beginning of verse 33. And while you're turning to that passage, let me say a word about our trip. I won't steal the thunder that the kids have because they're going to share with you next Sunday night, I believe. But, um, and I'm not ancient, but I've been doing mission trips for, for many years. As a matter of fact, uh, for three years, all summer long, I did exactly what we did for one week in Oregon. And I can uh, honestly say, I really am sincere when I say this, that this was the best mission trip I've ever been on for several reasons. One, I guess, is because um, that uh, I really haven't had the opportunity or haven't really been with these young people like I have with others and should have with them, perhaps. Another reason is because they did everything without complaining. Now, we had a grueling schedule. We were up at um, the first morning. We ate breakfast at 7.30. It was 8 after that every morning at 8 o'clock. And we went without break except for lunch until the revival services were over at uh, 9 o'clock at night. And they did that every day, and not one time did I ever hear anybody griping. I, they may have done it when I wasn't around, but they didn't complain. And they were so well prepared, and they did such a great job. And we had seven um, fifth and sixth grade children uh, except Christ, and two adults. And uh, one of these adults was a Mormon. And I cannot tell you enough um, how much I really am impressed with our young people. Don't you let anybody tell you these kids are not great because they really, truly are. I'm really, really impressed with them. And the pastor at um, Roseburg, the sponsoring church, told me that he'd been in mission works for 31 years and he's had some duds. He said, I've had some duds come up here, some real bummers. But he said, this is the greatest group that I've ever seen in 31 years of pastoring. And I've got a letter that he wrote, and I, it, it got here before I got back, and I wanted to read it, and I forgot to bring it out, and I'll put it in the Baptist Messenger. But he said he wanted me to convey to you that the, our group just restored his confidence in young people's mission trips. And he wants us to come back. Now, I think our kids want to go to Hawaii next summer, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, I just kind of dropped that as a subtle hint that we might want to, I'm kidding you, but um, I want you to be uh, aware of the fact that I know it was because of your prayer and your support and your concern and the preparation that went into uh, the weeks and weeks of training that these volunteers from our church uh, did. And for our sponsors, they were truly great. The Speaks, they're the greatest, aren't they? and uh, Tracy Stone, and Jim, and uh, Tim, and Debbie. Um, and a few college sponsorettes and sponsorees. And we just had a great time. Did I miss somebody as a sponsor? Seemed like there were more than that. But And my, uh, my cup's just kind of full today. I'm kind of like uh, Dave. I can't hardly... Uh, talk without um, this deterioration. Just coming home brought that kind of feeling to me. You're the greatest people. 
Now would you look at uh, verse 33 of chapter 18, and I'm going to read through verse 2 of chapter 19 for the completion of this passage and text. Really, I need to read verse 32 of chapter 18. Then the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the, and the Cushite answered, Let the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be as that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he paced back and forth as he walked, O my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, my son. Then it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourns for Absalom. And the victory that day was turned to mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved for his son. The setting of this text is in the wild hill country northeast of the Jordan River. A group of revolutionaries have driven King David from his throne, from his capital. And they are bent upon taking away his kingdom and destroying him. And so David flees and finds refuge in a walled city and finds security there. And he musters up his loyal troops to withstand this attempted coup. Who is the leader of these revolutionaries who are determined to take away this man's kingdom and kill him and destroy him? The leader is none other than David's own son, Absalom his favorite son, his beloved son. On that fateful day of our text, David salutes his troops and sends them into battle. And one by one, he talks to the commanders. He speaks to them and says, May it be well with you today in battle, but for my sake, deal gently with my son Absalom. I want to win the war but I don't want to lose my son. And all day long the king paced up and down at the gate of the wall city waiting for some word from the battlefield. And it was about nighttime when a watchman in the tower cries, a runner comes and David's heart skips a beat. And he must think to himself, if he comes alone, it must be good news. And so the runner comes and presents himself to, to David and says, O king, we've won a great battle today. We've won a victory. The enemy has been defeated. But David was not just interested in some word concerning victory or defeat. He wanted to know about his son. And so he asked, What about the young man Absalom? And the runner's head drops he can't bring himself to say the harsh words that Absalom is killed, that he's dead. And so he says it like this, May every one of your enemies be 
as it is to the young man, Absalom. And so David's heart is crushed, his son is lost, he's dead. And slowly I see him make his way sadly up the steps of that stone wall beside the city gate. And the thrill of victory has turned to ashes in his mouth. And he weeps as he goes and cries, O Absalom, my son, Absalom, my son, I would to God I died for you. It is David was not really a failure. He was extremely successful. His life story, his biography is a thrilling one. He came up through the ranks. He was a shepherd boy who really didn't even have standing in his own family, in his own home. But he had a brilliant mind and he possessed dauntless courage. And he was a genius as a poet and he was vastly attractive. And he had tremendous charisma so that everybody who came close to him was just put under his spell, and so he literally vaulted into national prominence from a shepherd boy to a king. That's the story of his life and his rapid rise to fame, and it makes good newspaper copy from the shepherd's tent to the king's palace, from the lowly hills of Judea to the thrones of God's kingdom, this is a vastly successful story in the life of David. And he ruled as king extremely well. He was a great statesman. He was a mighty soldier. He was a tremendous king. So that people who are looking back over the era, era of David call it the golden age of Israel. Success was written across the story of this young man's life. He would have been voted the number one newsmaker in the world. He would have made the cover of Time magazine. And so when I tell you that this man was a failure, you probably think I am foolish. But he failed in the most important place of a man's life. He failed as a father. Now you tell me this morning, fathers, that you are successful. I'm successful financially. I'm successful in my job. I've climbed the ladder to success. Big deal. A man who is successful in every area of life and he fails as a father in the economy of God, he is a failure. David failed in the most important place of his life. He failed as a father. And he must have thought as he climbed those steps, I have majored on minors and I've let the most important thing go undone. I've built a kingdom, but I've not built a son. E.F. Huff tells about seeing an unusual display in a department store window. He said he passed by this window one day and he saw this beautiful clock in the window. It was running, it was ticking, the pendulum was swinging and he could see the mechanism running properly. It had a face on it and hands, but it, didn't ha it had a face on it and numbers, but it didn't have any hands on the dial. 
And he said, it was doing everything perfectly well except the one thing for which the clock was made, that is, to indicate time. And he said, as I stood there watching that, looking at that clock and watching the people pass, hurrying about and scurrying, I thought of all the busy people moving and going and active, but our movement never really comes to much and our activity never really accomplishes much. We are tremendously successful and active. We're on the go. We're moving up the ladder. The only problem is that some of us are failing in the very thing for which we were made. We're successful as men, but failures as fathers. And this was a failure that had national repercussions. It always does. I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, nor am I given to pessimism. I like to think of myself as a positive thinker and optimistic in every way. But the real danger I see on the horizon today is not the, the acceleration of the nuclear devices in the various countries of the, of the land, our biggest problem is not really the shifting of the balance of power or even the economic crisis in America. Our real problem as I see it on the horizon is the disintegration of the American home and the abdication of the role of the father as the spiritual leader of that home. That's the big threat to our security as I see it. The problem in this nation that David faced didn't begin in the palace or the government hall. It began in his own home. That's where it always starts. And the 15th chapter of 2 Samuel tells about it. And Absalom began to lust for the power that his father had. And he had greed for his father's throne. And he had some loyalists with him and they began to have a whisper campaign. They began to say, there's no greater in Hebron than Absalom. And the whisper campaign gained momentum. And the friends of David told him one day, said, why the hearts of the whole nation are, is turned toward Absalom. And the kingdom that God established, the nation that God gave birth to in the loins of Abraham was tottering on the brink of disaster and chaos. It always happens like that. When you see the breakdown of the home that has repercussions that affects the security of the nation itself. It's frightening to read statements like Lyle Schaller's when he said, the disintegration of the American home will eventually lead to the decline and fall of the American Republic. Plato was said to have written, the nation, the problems of the nation are just the family problems writ large. What was the cause of this father's failure? To be sure, Absalom was not born a traitor. He was born with a tender heart to be loyal to his father. To be sure, Absalom was not born with treachery. He was not born evil. He was born with an inclination to sin, as all of us are. But he became what he was because of 
what he saw and how he was influenced. Now let me say right here some several things that I think are necessary at this point. First of all, I do not believe that every rebellious son is because of some father's failure. Not every son who has gone away and has jumped the traces is because of his father. Not so. As a matter of fact, I know some wild and rebellious young men whose parents are the godliest people I know and have always been. Nor do I believe that every family that is good will always have good children. I don't necessarily believe that. I believe that most will, but not every one of them. And so I want you to understand that I do not believe that every time a child goes wrong, there's something wrong with the parents, the father or the mother. I don't believe that at all. If that were true, then God would be a failure because His own children have kicked the traces and have gone wrong. So you'll understand that I'm talking in the general sense what happened in Absalom's life, what happened in David's life that caused this failure that so broke the heart of this king. Maybe it was because David didn't have time for his son. If you'll look sometime in the fifth verse of this 18th chapter, you're going to find an interesting thing there because as David sends the commanders out to battle, he tells them, I want you to deal gently with my son. I want you to take care of Absalom, my son. I want you to watch after him. It just may be that that was the pattern of David's life all of Absalom's childhood, that he was that he constantly shifted the responsibility of the care and keeping of his son to someone else. And when I read that, I wanted to call out, didn't you, David, he's your son. He's your responsibility. You have been in charge with the stewardship of his life. Don't leave the care of your son to someone else. You have been given the role of the leadership and the security and the safety of your children. Don't leave that responsibility to someone else. But that's the practice of most of us. And David had a pretty good excuse, I suppose. He was just covered with mountains of burdens of state and mountains of problems and he really didn't have time to give individual attention to his son, did he? That's the rationale you and I most often use. I know the feeling most of us have. I've done my part as a Christian father, a Christian parent, if I take my children to church on Sunday, I'll give the pastor and the teachers the responsibility of their spiritual nurture. Nathan Porter was for many years employed by the Home Mission Board and he was gone a lot. He had to be away speaking engagements and revivals, etc. 
And one day he came home and his daughter was showing him a picture that she drew at school and she had to draw a picture of her family. She had two other, she had another brother and sister and, and she showed him this picture that she had drawn of her family. He said he got to looking at the picture and there was somebody missing in it. Well, you, you think, well, she didn't put herself there. Yeah, she put herself. There were three kids and a mother. And he said, as I looked at that picture, all of a sudden it dawned on me that I was gone so much from my home. I, was, I had abdicated my position so many times as a father that my daughter didn't even think of me when it came time to draw the family picture. And so he said, I got on the telephone and I called Dr. Rutledge in the home mission board office and I said, Dr. Rutledge, I'm going to have to cancel some of my speaking engagements and some of my trips. It's just dawned on me today because of what I've seen my daughter do. It's just dawned on me that I am no longer in the picture as her father. It seems to me that what children really want, what sons really want, is a father. I would imagine that if you were to give testimony about your father, that it would be just like the testimonies of these young men today. You would have nothing probably to say about the things they gave you monetarily, but who they were and what they were. Kenneth Chafin said he was teaching at Southwestern at the time. He came in one night just to get dressed to leave again. And his daughter said to him, Daddy, you're going to stay home tonight? And he said, No, honey, I've got to go tell some, some people how to be good daddies. And he said, It just occurred to me that I was going off to tell other people how to be good daddies, and I couldn't be one myself. And so as he said, as he shaved and got dressed, he said to his daughter, Honey, there's no way I can counsel this engagement tonight, but I'll let you help me make the speech. What do you think? What, what is a good daddy? What does a good daddy do? What does he look like? And she said she thought a minute, and she said, Well, a good, daddy, a good daddy knows how to cook popcorn. And a good daddy can, can build a fire in the fireplace. And a good daddy can fly a kite. And he said, as I finished dressing, I had my sermon in hand and I had it in my head and in my heart. I was going to tell those people that the way to be a good father is just to involve yourself in the life of your children and give them the focus of your time and your attention and your devotion and your love. You know, I've handled that verse a lot myself. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. I've handled that verse myself, and I've claimed that promise several times, but I've not really understood that verse. And I was looking at it in the New American Standard translation not long ago, and it says this, Train up a child according to his way. According to whose way? Well, it may mean according to God's way, perhaps it does, but I seem to think it means as it focuses upon the individuality of every child, that every child has to be handled differently because each child is uniquely made 
And no way can a person train up his child according to his unique way without focusing his time and attention on that child. He can't do it unless he puts himself in the picture. And maybe because, maybe Absalom failed and David failed, maybe it was because of David's sin. Have you ever noticed that it is usually true that the child reflects the character, the moral character of his father? Usually that is true. That is biblically true. Do you remember when Abraham lied to protect himself when he thought that Sarah would be desired. He did that twice. He lied. He, he was deceitful. And he had a son, Isaac. And Isaac did the same thing exactly as his father did. And Isaac had two sons. One was named Jacob and Esau. And Jacob was called the deceiver for he was the same kind of person. It is usually true that the sin of the father is reflected in his children. Now what was David's sin? His sin in the ultimate, at the first, at the point of sin was covetousness. Not adultery, covetousness. Now what is covetousness? Covetousness is desiring something that somebody else has and because somebody else has it. Let me give you an illustration. Jim and Bob are playing marbles and Bob says to Jim, let's play for keeps. Jim says, what do you mean? He says, well, let's draw a circle and we'll, I'll put some of my marbles in the circle, you put some of yours in there and all my marbles that you can knock out of the circle, you get to keep. And all of a sudden, Jim wants Bob's marbles so bad he can't hardly stand it. He can almost taste them. He wants those marbles not because he needs them or because they're prettier than his. He wants those marbles because they belong to Bob. Now David sinned the sin of adultery not because Bathsheba was more beautiful than any woman he'd ever seen or that he didn't have a wife. He sinned covetously because he desired that woman because she belonged to somebody else. And Absalom's sin was covetousness. He could have been king if he just waited. All that his father had was his. But because his father had it and he didn't, he coveted it. He wanted it so bad he was willing to kill his own father to get it. For oftentimes it is true that the sin of the father is reflected in his children. And so I declare to you this morning if there's an area of weakness in your life, if there's sin in your life, if there is a tendency in your life towards sin, beware aware of the fact that what is experienced in your life will more than likely be experienced in the life of your child. But I've got to finish with this thought. I can't come to this passage. I have not been able to come to this verse, this passage of Scripture, and not think of God. It seems to me that something about the heartbreak of David must be something like the heartbreak of God. I can't see this man breaking his heart out as he climbs to the top of that tower without thinking of the sorrow of God as he must look upon us. 
There's no heartbreak like the heartbreak of a father who sees his son fling aside his birthright like a fool. There's no sorrow like the sorrow of a father who dreams so much for his son only to see him choose the worst, to long for companionship and get ingratitude, to crave affection and get indifference. I knew of a preacher whose son was a rebel. He broke their heart. Sometime he would come in so drunk he'd fall across the bed asleep. And one night this broken-hearted mother went in. Her son, drunk, stoned out asleep. She kissed him on the cheek, prepared him for bed. She said to her husband, the only time he lets me love him is when he's asleep. Not only is God, must God's heart be broken because of our estrangement, but how His heart must be broken because of our impoverishment. There's a vast gap and difference between what God desires for us and has made available for us as a father and what we have appropriated. He has placed vast resources for potential greatness in life and we've not availed ourselves of them. And so Jesus stood reflecting the heart of God, looking out over Jerusalem and said, I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And it is a part of the agony of the cross that God has made available life full and rich and abundant. And we have chosen the lesser. And so Jesus told the parable of it. He said, My people Israel is like a vineyard that's been planted and watered and protected and nurtured and cultivated and cared for. And they've stoned the, care, the caretaker and they've killed the prophets and they've brought forth sour grapes. I tell you, Jesus' statement, you would not come to me that you might have life, is the eternal heartbreak of God. And so, I not only feel this morning like David as a father who has failed so many ways, but I also feel like Absalom, a son who has failed his father. Don't you? first time I preached this sermon, the only other time, was in West Texas and the service was on the radio. About two weeks after I preached the sermon, I got this letter in the mail. It was a, inside was one of these business farms, triplicate farms of some business. I think it was some kind of tire company in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And this man had written in longhand on this triplicate farm and mailed it to me, something like this. He said, I was traveling across the country on Father's Day 
and I turned on the radio and was searching for some music when I heard your sermon. And he said, I don't normally listen to preachers. That's my problem. But he said, I, for some reason, stayed with you to the end. And he said, it wasn't long until tears were on my cheeks. And he said, I want you to know that in my car that day, driving to Amarillo, Texas, I rededicated myself to God and to my children. I wonder if there's anybody listening this morning who would be willing to do the same. Now there are three invitations that I offer here in this church. The first invitation is for those of us who have never received Christ as our personal Savior. Wouldn't you like for Him to take your sin? Wouldn't you like for Him to forgive your sin? Wouldn't you like for Jesus to be your Savior? Wouldn't you like to know that you could come and confess God and confess Christ as personal Savior and that He would come and live in your life, forgive all sin, take you to heaven? Wouldn't you like to do that right now? The Bible says that if you'll trust Jesus and Jesus alone, turning from your self-life to trust Him, He will come into your life and save you. Would you do it right now? Would you make this statement, Lord Jesus, I accept you as my personal Savior. I'm a sinner and I want you to be my Savior. I want to place all my sin upon you. The second invitation is for Baptists to come and put their life here in this church. Especially is that important today if you are a father. You are the spiritual leader of the home. It's time for you to assume that role as the spiritual leader. And the third invitation is for you to come this morning to do what that man did riding along in his car. Rededicate yourself to God and to your children. And after I've led us in prayer, I know that some are going to come and so we'll be waiting for you prayerfully. Heavenly Father, we are aware this morning that there's so wide a gap between what you desire for us, what we are. How that must break your heart to realize the difference between the potential and the reality. What we can be and what we are. My prayer this morning is for fathers, and mothers, children. That they'll come to know Christ, that they'll know how to walk with Him, to serve Him, to be fruitful. Help us to see, Father, that the way to solve the problems is to go back to the beginning place, right in the home, 
And I pray, God, that there will be life-changing, God-honoring, kingdom-extending decisions made here today. Father, if you'd lead some of those young people who responded in Oregon to come before their church, I pray you'll do that now. Make the same kind of decision here. We want this to be your invitation, and so we pray your Spirit will have his freedom. In Jesus' name. Father, this has been a day of victory for many here. And Lord, for some, it's still a day of decision. We pray, Lord, that each person here could realize the claims of Christ upon their own life. And Father, for those who are fathers here, we pray, Lord, that in their own way this week, that they can recommit their fatherhood, their leadership of their family to you so that they can truly be the kind of father that you want them to be. Lord, we thank you for this time of inspiration, this time of worship, this time, Lord, that we came to rejoice in you. And now as we go, Lord, show us how you want us to minister throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen.